Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, A New Nation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49, verses 13 to 28, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Suitable Blessings. You know, the passage we're studying today ends with a statement. Genesis 49, verse 28 says, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Now, those of you who are wise parents, well, you'll understand the concept of a suitable blessing. You know that as you bless your children, you don't bless each of them in exactly the same way as you bless the other. You understand their unique gifts and their personality traits and their weaknesses and those areas where they're most likely to sin, and you make a point. You see, it's your desire to treat each of them fairly and with an equal degree of love and concern. But an equal degree of love does not mean you treat each of them in the same fashion. You know, one of your children may be more stubborn and self-willed, but at the same time, that child is more determined and goal-oriented. You know, your other child may be more relationally driven and deeply values friendship and warmth, but they might also be more easily swayed by peer pressure and the desire to conform. Another's more intellectual. Another has, you know, the more outdoors adventure orientation. You understand what I'm saying? If you are to treat each one fairly, you'll have to treat each one differently. The wise parents try to understand just who it is that God has given them, and then on the basis of that, to disciple them appropriate to their gifts and their personality and their strengths as well as their weaknesses. Wise parents also want to make sure that their children are able to understand themselves. That means that the way in which you bless your children is going to vary. One child might be blessed by an encouraging note or a hug, and the next will find that same encouraging note to mean very little. You know, wise parents learn to bless each child with a blessing suitable to them. You know, if you've been following me through Genesis chapter 49, you probably have wondered whether this chapter really is a chapter of blessing after all. You see, when it comes to Reuben the oldest, he's called unstable as water. And Simeon and Levi are called men of violence. And in consequence of their sins, they are given a stern rebuke. And the opportunity to provide leadership to the emerging nation is taken away from all three of them. And so from that perspective, they're not blessed. Look, I'm all for giving out compliments and doing our best to encourage our kids. It's it's valuable. It's even necessary for our children's welfare. But please understand that these 12 sons of Jacob are not children anymore. They're adults with their own families. And the blessing that Jacob is giving is so much more than simply a family blessing. Jacob knows that this last act of his on this earth is to transition from family to nation. If he gives his oldest son the right of national leadership, the nation might never recover. It might disintegrate. See, the time is now for Jacob to act decisively and assure that the emerging nation will be built on solid footing rather than on sinking sand. Let me give you a personal example. You know, I once knew a family who had their heart set that their oldest son would become a pastor. Now, he's a fine enough chap, and he did love the Lord. But he was socially awkward. He was introverted to the extreme. He had a hard time lifting his eyes and looking someone in the face. It was almost impossible to get him to say anything in public. 
I think you would have made a fine accountant or perhaps a good engineer or perhaps even a wonderful computer designer. I also had no doubt that given time, he, he would find his own stride and he would become faithful as a servant of Christ in the local church. But to pretend to make him into a pastor in training would have been a disaster for any church that hired him in the future and would have given him a greater disaster in his own personal life. Someone needed to bell the cat and sit him down and explain that this was never going to be for him even though it would hurt him in the immediate, in the end, to keep him from trying to be a pastor would be a blessing. And in Reuben's case, the firstborn, leadership was never going to be given to him. You see, he was impulsive and sensual and grasping. He would have destroyed the new and emerging nation. Jacob is, in fact, blessing him by confronting him with himself and withdrawing the leadership from him. But Jacob is also wise enough to, when he gives the ultimate leadership to his fourth son, Judah, to give it to him in the distant future. Judah's descendants will grow to become kings, but that day is still a long ways away. Now, just a word of explanation regarding what we're reading. Jacob is blessing his sons according to the order of the women to whom they were born. He begins with Leah, who is his first wife who bore him six sons. Then he moves to Zilpah and Bilhah, his two concubines, and they had two sons apiece. And finally, he's going to bless the two sons of Rachel. Now, we have already looked at what Jacob has said to his first four sons, that is, to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then to Judah. So now let's consider the last eight sons. He starts with Zebulun, who's the son of Leah, and he is his tenth son. Genesis 49, 13 says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. It's a strange blessing because we know that the territory of Zebulun, that is, the land they inherited in the promised land, was not on the Mediterranean at all. Neither was it on the border of Sidon. But in earlier times, the name Sidon was taken as a collective term for Phoenicia. And the Phoenicians were an ancient people whose region corresponded with parts of what we now call Lebanon and Syria— And furthermore, they did live in parts of what we now know as Israel. And Jacob is right that the tribe of Zebulun did border on their ancient territory. And that stuff about the sea isn't the Mediterranean. It's the the Sea of Galilee. And clearly, Jacob sees that the economy of this tribe will have something to do with the fishing industry. Now, I mention this because when you think of Zebulun and then of Naphtali— whom Jacob is going to mention later, you might also think of the the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You know, in Matthew 4, 13 to 15, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he, that is Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. So Jacob's prophecy really did literally come true. A way was established through Zebulun, that would lead to the ocean. Next, Jacob speaks of Issachar, his ninth son, also born of Leah. Genesis 49, 14 and 15 says, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. You know, the troubling phrase in this blessing is the last line, a servant of forced labor. So what does that mean? You know, is Jacob thinking that in some time in the future, the tribe of Issachar is going to be enslaved in some fashion? 
Well, I think not, and here's why. We do know that during the time of the judges, Deborah, in Judges 5, verse 15, commends the men of Issachar for standing with the Israelites in battle. They were, as Jacob predicted, strong as a donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. That is, they stayed with the rest of Israel, but they were very strong men in battle. They were not known as slackers. They were hard workers. 1 Chronicles 12.33 says that they supported David with undivided loyalty. When later King Hezekiah called on the nation for renewal and revival, 2 Chronicles 30 verse 10 says that Issachar humbled themselves, traveled to Jerusalem. See, there's no record of them being enslaved, at least not until the Assyrian invasion. And a great many Hebrew scholars translate that phrase, forced labor, to mean a laboring worker, a never tiring servant of the people of God, not of slaves, but hard workers. And I might say, what a blessing. Issachar is not the tribe of leaders, but they are the people to be counted on when the going gets tough. You know, I've personally known many people just like that. They may not be the preachers or the elders, but when everyone else is complaining or saying things can't be done, these what I call Issachar types just put their heads down and they serve and they work and they get things done. I mean, what a blessing they are. And then Jacob moves to Dan, his son from Bilhah, who was Rachel's servant. Genesis 49, 16 to 18 says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his riders fall backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. You know, it's hard when reading this to determine whether Jacob is, is commending Dan, is he doing that, or does he see trouble along the way? And I mention this because when Israel as a nation split into two, the tribe of Dan would give leadership in building a great pagan temple and then enticing Israel towards idolatry. Indeed, the later prophet Amos would include Dan in his list of the famous idolaters. You know, is Jacob saying that Dan is like a serpent, like Satan, for instance? Or is this a form of a blessing? Which is it? Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, these difficult times, we're so grateful for those who stand with us, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. You've ensured that in the midst of distressing days, trustworthy, relevant, and accessible Bible teaching continues to be offered every day. We're so grateful for your continued prayers and partnership. The month of June is one of the more critical financial months of the year for the ministries of Back to the Bible. And we know there are many because of the present difficult times who are unable to give. Please know we understand. But if you are able, your gift to help meet this important fiscal year-end goal by June 30th would be so appreciated. And remember, the ministry has been blessed this month to receive a $95,000 match pledge. So for every dollar you give, that gift is doubled up to $95,000. To offer a gift this month, call us, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or give securely online at backtothebible.ca. Most Bible commentators see Jacob's word to Dan as a blessing. You know, first is the promise that Dan would judge his people, and we do know that the most famous of all the judges was Samson, and he came from the tribe of Dan. 
And then following the promise that Dan would have a major role in the time of the judges, at least this is how most Bible teachers see it, is the promise of the serpent or the viper that bites the horse's heel. And they see in that the promise that although Dan will remain small in size, yet Dan will be formidable in battle, not to be taken lightly. Now, that's a possible interpretation of Jacob's words, but there's no reason to think that is what Jacob meant. So you might remember that I had already mentioned Deborah and how she commended the courage and leadership of the men of Issachar in her battle with Sisera, the man who wanted to enslave Israel. Issachar had fought with great courage in those days, but Dan had not. Judges 5.17 says that Dan simply stayed away from the fight. They had better things to do. And it may be that Jacob is referring to that very thing. Dan would be a tribe that was treacherous in Israel, not to be counted on. Jacob sighs and he looks to heaven and he says, Oh Lord, I wait for your salvation. So this no doubt is a sobering moment. Next, Jacob moves to Gad, the, the son of Zilpah, Leah's handmaiden. Genesis 49, 19 says, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. You know, eventually the tribe of Gad found their home on the east side of the Jordan River. They were one of the Transjordanian tribes, but there they were exposed to numerous incursions of marauding bands of raiders. But, says Jacob, they're going to return the favor on those raiders. Next, Asher, also the son of Zilpah. Genesis 49 verse 20 says, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Well, it's a blessing indeed. Asher is going to live in prosperity. And that's what did come about. The land Asher inherited was a land overlooking the Mediterranean. It was great farmland. It had very fruitful hills. But because the tribe of Asher had direct access to the ocean, they were able to add to their riches through their trade from the ocean. One note about Asher. You might remember that when Mary and Joseph first brought baby Jesus to be presented to the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a prophetess there. She was an 84-year-old widow, and she began to speak about the future of Jesus and all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. That woman's name was Anna, and Luke tells us that she was from the tribe of Asher. And so in some fashion, the Lord continued to maintain his faithful people in that tribe, giving them also a dimension of spiritual riches. Well, next blessing is to Naphtali. This is the son of Bilhah. Genesis 49, 21 says, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. So the blessing is simple. Naphtali is going to be a productive people living on a productive land, giving birth to children or a tribe that has a future. And so Jacob has finished blessing his 10 sons. The last two are his youngest two. They're both the children of Rachel, the woman whom he loved. The largest blessing is reserved for Joseph, the man who was prophesied to lead the new nation, the man who had already served to save the family of Israel from certain death. Genesis 49, verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with a blessing of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. You know, the blessing that Jacob bestows on his son Joseph is actually a longer blessing than the one he bestows on Judah. Judah is going to be the leader of the future, but at this moment, at this crucial point in time when the nation is being formed, Joseph's place is the most important among the brothers. It's not hard to understand what Jacob is talking about here, is it? Joseph is like a flourishing bough, a grapevine running over the wall. You know, in the future, the tribe of Manasseh, one of two Joseph's sons, would would inherit the land on both sides of the Jordan. They'd be the only tribe that would do that. They would be the largest tribe, the most fruitful on both sides of the wall. But then Jacob turns back to his son specifically. The archers, he said, bitterly attacked him. And I have no doubt that Jacob is speaking about the 10 sons he has just blessed. They attacked him and they might have destroyed him, yet Joseph's bow remained unmoved. You know, the NIV says that his hands remained steady. You know, there are others who would have collapsed into despair, who would have spent the rest of their lives bemoaning what had become of them, bitter and breathing out revenge. Not so for Joseph. To remain steady is to remain steadfast in the faith he had before the archers had shot at him. It's a remarkable thing that. There are men and women who are persecuted and slandered and wounded, but instead of reacting, they continue to be unmoved. Their confidence in their God remains what it has always been. Joseph had trusted in God and was faithful to him before he was sold into slavery by his jealous and vindictive brothers. They did him so much harm, but he never stopped trusting in God, and he remained faithful after that event. And by the way, this is the mark of a man or woman of God, steadfast, regardless of circumstances. But rather than giving accolades to Joseph, Jacob very wisely gives all the praise of this to God. God had done it. Joseph's arms were made agile by the mighty one of Jacob. Jacob is saying, my God gave you the strength to remain steadfast. It's a testimony of how well his God dealt with his son. You, more than your brothers, inherit the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was told that through him a blessing would come to the world, and indeed it's already happened in you. You, my son, have blessed the world through your handling of the grain supplies when the world was starving. And then after calling God in verse 25, the God of your father, that is, the God of Jacob, he then calls God Shaddai, the mighty one, the one who has all the power to accomplish what he wills, Our translation simply says, Almighty. Well, now, since we know that nothing is too hard for God, notice also what Jacob calls God. He calls him the shepherd. It was always his hand that led you, my son Joseph, even when you went as a slave to Egypt. And then Jacob calls God the stone or the rock of Israel. God is not only a solid place on which to stand. He's also the stone on which the entire nation will be built. You know, it's fascinating for me to think of how similar Joseph is to Jesus. I mean, think of what Peter said of him in in Acts 4, 10 to 12. 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah, we're all like Joseph's brothers. We bitterly attack Jesus, and we all participated in nailing him to a cross, and yet he's the stone that the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. He who was despised by men and was thrown away has become the only source of salvation for the world. And that's what Joseph became to his brothers. He was a type of Christ. With that, Jacob has one more blessing, and it's in Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. You know, basically, Jacob predicts that even though Benjamin is the youngest, his aggression would be equal to that of his brothers. No, Benjamin is not set apart. Only Judah and Joseph are given a special place. I began by saying that a wise parent knows their children well. You know, I also began by saying that this is more than the story of a wise parent. This is a story of how a nation was born, and this is the story of the redemption of the world. Our Heavenly Father God is a wise parent to all of us. He knows that none of us can be trusted with the leadership of the world. And therefore, he has entrusted his firstborn, his son Jesus, to be our Savior. He has come and we rejected him utterly, but Jesus has become the source of our salvation. For us to join among the people of God, we need to follow the leadership whom God has appointed, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Follow him all the way through, and you will be a part of the eternal people of God. May the Lord bless you this day. You know, John, you can't help but think about the fact that the one who so much wrong was done to Joseph was also the one who provided salvation for those who treated him so harshly. Now there's an image of Christ. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is, Ben. I mean, all that I can think of when I think of the death of our Savior is that it was my sins that laid him there, that he also bore my sins along with every other. And uh, the sins that I have, I mean, I have to understand my sins. My sins are directed at God himself. It's my rebellion against him. It's my hatred of him. And it's my hatred of Christ. I mean, there's an image, isn't it? I mean, he whom we hated, him who we drove to the cross, him who we would not receive as the earth's rightful ruler is the one that has given us grace. Yeah, that's the image in Genesis, and that's the fruition in Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Well, messages like this help us feel we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. 
So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts, and Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.